We're going back to Romans chapter 7 this morning. This will be the third week we've been in it. To be honest with you, I could very easily spend the rest of my lifetime in Romans and forget about everything. <laughs> so I've shared this with you that, you know, these, since we started this book, I spent, I've always spent a lot of time getting ready to preach on Sunday, but I'm spending more time. It's like, I, I, if I didn't do anything else, I could very easily do nothing but prepare for the next 30 minutes every week. Uh, because the deeper you go into Romans, the more you find those golden jewels, those golden nuggets that, uh, that might escape you just through some kind of a cursory reading. I want to go back to the first of the chapter, and I'm going to read through all of it to help keep things in perspective. And then we're going to be pick, picking up at verse uh, 14 or so this morning, 13. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has just a, just a jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, while her husband is living, she's joined to a, if she is joined to another. If, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Uh, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for our death, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And then we have one of these rhetorical questions that Paul is anticipating his audience is going to have uh, in regard to what he has just written. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. In other words, one of the things that Paul is really pushing in this chapter is this is a law is a good thing. It would be easy for sinful people to look upon the law as being a curse and being bad because it brings death and this, that, and the other. But we know this, that Paul is an advocate of the law, that the law is good. For what reason? I would not have come to know sin except through the law. In other words, the law does a lot of things. We've talked about this before, and that is one of the things that reveals to us the character of God. What is God like? What things are important to God? It also reveals to us what God's expectations are for us. But I would say principally and primarily for believers. What it does is this, is it constantly, continually drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. It keeps us in a place where we understand our absolute need for him, as much of him as we can have for him all the time. One of the things Paul is fighting in this chapter is he understands that some people are going to come to the idea that the law is not a good thing because it brings death. Eternal death, ultimately. 
For I would not have known what, uh, about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Uh, and I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment which was to result in, my, in, in life proved to, to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me. And through it killed me, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. And this is where we're getting to this morning. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Another one of those questions. And again, the answer here is going to be, may it never be. Would, may, may God forbid, as some of the commentators uh, have spoken, to, to, that anyone conclude that that is the end of what I've written uh, about Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through the, that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual and that I am a flesh sold into bondage. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I do not like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. That if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, I agree with the law uh, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good in, uh, dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I am joyful, concurring with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body, of this death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, uh, the law of sin. We talked, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, about the doctrine of what the, what's called the doctrine of perfectionism. The, the real issue, as we've said already a couple of times in regard to this particular passage, is this. The question that comes up is this, and that is, is Paul talking about a former state he was in, or is he talking about the current state he happens to find himself in as he's writing the book of Romans? And we find that there are people that, that, that argue, basically, that Paul cannot be talking about his current state because he says things that a true believer wouldn't say. There have been brothers and sisters in Christ that have come to that conclusion down through the generations. And I want you to understand that that is only a small portion of them. But it's led to some particular things. And one of those is John Wesley basically believed this. He believed in perfectionism. He believed that it's possible for a believer to get uh, to the point in their life where they no longer sin. Where they become sinless in this life. I'm not sure he ever thought that about himself. But he taught the idea that that was conceivably possible. 
we know there have been a few uh, the theologians, but, but, the, but the vast majority of Bible scholars and theologians down through the generations and people that sit in the pews, I would imagine, too, have come to the conclusion that's not what's going on here, that Paul is talking about uh, in these verses where he's talking about this inward struggle with sin that continues in him. He's, he's talking about the condition he finds himself in right now as he's writing. He's talking about the fight, the war raging in him against the sin, the vestige of sin that remains even after his conversion. The raging war that's going on inside of him. Now, I would say to you that you know, the idea of perfectionism really is not so much of a problem in the church today. There are not that many people who would abide according to that, or believe it. But one of the knee-jerk reactions to this theology of perfectionism that came about is what's called carnal Christianity. You ever hear that? That phrase? Basically what it means is fleshy or fleshly Christianity. Uh, I would say to you that it is a far greater problem in the world today and the culture today than perfectionism by any long shot in the dark. Carnal Christianity or fleshly Christianity is the idea that you can make a profession of faith in Christ Jesus and at the same time continue to live your life in a manner that is very little different from the average unbeliever. Now, would you say that might be a, a problem that would be pervasive maybe in the culture today? I mean, how many funerals have you gone to in your lifetime that the end message is not this, is so-and-so is in heaven now? Because when they were 10 years old, they professed faith in Jesus Christ. And there's no real mention of how they live their life after that. What Paul is talking about here is a struggle that goes on until the time that we pass from this life and enter into glory. It's true for every one of us. And it's, it's a struggle that we, it's not a question of will we engage in it. It's a question that we must in fact engage into it. Be involved, active in the putting of sin to death. Not in all the people around us as much as it is putting the sin to death in us. We will not do that in this lifetime. We cannot do that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. But we cannot be satisfied with things the way that they are. That is almost anti-Christian. To have that mindset. In other words, what Paul is describing here is his current condition. The condition that you and I would find ourselves in now. Now, Paul's not in that condition anymore. 
Paul's not in, he's not in the same condition in regard to sin that he was when he was writing this as we speak now. He's in heaven right now. He's been glorified. In other words, he's not struggling with sin anymore. It's been finally taken completely out of the picture of Paul. But that didn't happen until the time he died. And that will be true for, for those of us who truly believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There are people not so many years ago that probably would have, would have said that Keith was a Christian. I'm sure that probably my parents probably would have hopefully have concluded that because after all, he seems to be a reasonably decent, good person. See, this is one of the, the, the true lies that Satan uses and propagates, and that is that in this life we can get to the point that we don't have to deal with sin any longer. You understand that when we fall into that trap, we've fallen into his trap. We have to be involved in this putting sin to death. comes down to this the best way to describe us where we are is that we are both at the same time not independent of one another in the same person we are both a saint and a sinner there's one sense in which we are saints we are perfectly pure in the right, in, 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 before the throne of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to, has been credited to our account. We are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. We have been positionally sanctified. God has declared us holy. But not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And, 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 and we receive that through our faith in him. God forbid that any Christian would ever come to the point of thinking or developing the mindset that I know there's sin in me. I know I'm supposed to be actively engaged in putting it to death by the power of the Spirit. But I'm tired of dealing with it. I'm just going to go with the flow. We were talking about this in Sunday school. You know what you find in the scriptures over and over again is excel, move ahead, move ahead. Move. There's no encouragement to ever go backwards. It's always to grow, to stretch out, to develop a deeper and deeper, a growing relationship with Christ. Not the opposite. And never to be satisfied where you are. Scripture does not teach that at all. There's not one scripture that, could, that I could use, that I could give you this morning, that would cause you to conclude that God is at work in me and through me and, and, and all this, but I'm just kind of at a place where all I need to do is just sit back and, and wait for Christ to come back or wait to die. That kind of thinking is not in Scripture at all. It's always with this forward motion, this growing motion, this, this, this becoming more and more mature, not less, and not ever being satisfied where you are. But wanting more, desiring more, 
deepening your relationship with Christ. And living as if that is, and it is, the central thing. We're saints and sinners. We're saints and sinners, right? You understand that? But there's a sense in which as time goes by, we should be becoming more saintly and less sinful. More saintly and less sinful. Now, you can't do that on your own. Now, let me just tell you, if you try to do it on your own, you're going to fall flat on your face. It happens every time. That is something the Spirit has to do within us. But we have a choice to make. To work with the Spirit or to resist the Spirit. Very often we choose to resist the Spirit. So I just want you to know something this morning. There's a sense in which, just like with the Apostle Paul, that the time of your conversion, you became a saint. At the same time, there is still sin that is living and breathing in you. And let me tell you, God hates it every much as, as he has hated all the other sin that he's done away with already. God always abhors sin. And let me tell you, God abhors sin more in his children than he does in anybody else. There is no foundation. As a matter of fact, in chapter, or verse 14 here in this chapter, Paul calls himself carnal. In other words, fleshy or fleshly. That's where the whole concept of this carnal Christianity came from. There are a lot of people out there, they believe that what the message of the gospel is, is be good. Be good. You'll be right with God. All you got to do is be good. That's not the message of the gospel at all. The message of the gospel is, oh, by the way, you are not good. You have sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. How do you get the glory of God? Through Christ Jesus, through faith in him. Paul describes the struggle that's going on within him. He's doing what he doesn't understand. He's doing what he doesn't want to do. He's doing the very thing sometimes that he hates. Do you ever find yourself like that? How many times lately have you thought, where did that come from? I can't believe I said what I just said. I can't even believe what I just thought. Or maybe something you did. You th you're thinking, you know, I've had this besetting sin for all these years and I fought it and I fought it and I fought it. I finally have victory over it. And the next thing you know, you trip all over it again. 
What does it do? It, 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 on your face, on your knees before God, it drives you over and over again to the cross of Christ. That is the key to all of it, not you, not your ability. It's Him and His ability. I don't know about you, but Paul describes me very vividly here. Where I am today, not where I was when I first became a believer, not certainly not where I was before I became a believer. But where I am right now. You find yourself doing the very thing you do not wish to do. Do you see evil in your heart? Do you see evil present in yourself? Do you hate it? Or have you just simply accepted the fact it's there? not where God wants you to be. When was the last time you cried out to God, wretched man or wretched woman that I am? Because you were confronted with your sin in maybe a way you hadn't been in a long time or in a way that you never had been before. See, this is the hammer of the law coming down on Paul, driving him to his knees. Crying out to God. Who will set me free? We know the answer. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. There is no one else that can do such a thing. But He can, He will, and He has. So, where is your trust and hope? Does it lie in you? Do you believe that you're going to make it on your own? Do you have, live in a fallacy where you really believe that by your own power and strength that you can put sin to death in you? In yourself? I need the every hour. Falls way short. I need thee every hour. I need thee every minute. I need thee every second. I need thee with every bit of passing time.
I need thee now as much as I needed thee then. I will need thee for all of eternity. But by thee, the death stroke of sin has fallen in me. And by thee, I will enter into a time in glory when I will no longer have this struggle. By Christ, you will always do the right thing. You will never do the wrong thing. You will always have the right thoughts. You will never have a bad or wicked thought ever again. Does that sound good? Does that sound great? Does that sound almost unbelievable? Does it ultimately sound unbelievable? Well, you know what? It is unbelievable. If Christ isn't in the picture. But he is. And it's true. Because he said so. And he is always right. Always. Never faltering. Never failing. Do you believe that Christ really and truly has done it all for you? If you believe that, you have to believe that Christ even now is doing all for you. He is in heaven. He is your heavenly advocate. He's speaking on your behalf now in the heavenly places. Your name echoes in the halls of heaven. Because Christ speaks forth your name. What a Savior. Oh, what a Savior.